0: This has absolutely nothing to do with today's show, but it's something I just learned about and thought it was fascinating. There used to be a dating app called Hater that uh, that matched people based on their mutual hatred of things. I wish that I had met my wife through this app, even though it doesn't seem to be around anymore, was released in 2017. I wish I had met her through that app rather than having to toil away on plenty of fish. I mean, we could have realized how much we had in common right away. We both hate when people share a meme and then caption it this as if it's supposed to make it that much more important or relevant to anybody. Uh, We both hate people who refer to their dogs as their children or their fur babies. That's infuriating. Those people are moronic. And we both hate astrology. I mean, all we would have had to do is realize that we had these three things in common. And whatever you hear about true love, finding love in a partner... Find mutual hatred. That is the cement that will keep you two together forever. All right, so today's episode is going to follow a little bit of a different format, and it's kind of something that I've been dodging for a while because it seems to be a really hot-button talking point and pretty common across a lot of podcasts, but um, it's a lot about kind of this new wave of intolerance, but that somehow being uh, the tolerant side. And this has been kind of... I don't know, it's kind of inspired by the new recent attacks in the STEM field. So that's STEM is Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. And it's coming from a site called Equitable Math. And basically, well, I'm just going to pull up what the actual picture of this thing says here. So okay, the screenshot here reads white supremacy culture shows up in the math classrooms when the focus is getting the right answer. So the concept of mathematics being purely objective is unequivocally false and teaching it is even much less so. Upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuate objectivity as well as a fear of open conflict. Now as we kind of touched on before, I mean nothing in the STEM fields is discovered or considered true until it's completely ripped apart by the peers in that given field, right? So when it's talking about a fear of open conflict and saying that there isn't a right or wrong answer is completely false, and it's completely misguided. And even though, you know, this may seem like a small statement to make, I mean, we, you know, this stuff starts as a little trickle, and then it grows into a stream and into a river and this kind of stuff the attacks on again on the stem field specifically i mean they bother me as an electrician because despite just being a dumb tradesman like we actually have to have a fairly deep understanding of of electrical mathematics and that has a lot to do with physics actually it has everything to do with physics and all of our calculations are based on getting the right answer that's how we develop safe systems that's why we don't have electrical lines overheating overcurrent problems and ultimately fires. So that all comes down to getting the right answer and knowing the correct parameters for wire conductivity and how much amperage you can pull through it. Without these tried, tested and proven mathematical equations, we don't have the safe electrical grid or electrical systems within our homes without it. It's impossible. We go through all this math, You test the upper limits of, of cables and what they are capable of carrying and conducting. And that's what lets our whole society kind of work safely. That's how we have parameters on everything. That's why we don't have electrical fires popping up everywhere all the time. Because if there wasn't a right answer, then we wouldn't be able to run this whole thing safely. They're just it it wouldn't work that way. You can't run. So this is getting a little bit technical. But you're in your houses, your general circuits throughout your home are in 14 gauge wire, that's good for up to 15 amps. Okay, now you could run a larger gauge wire, and you could run larger receptacles, but nothing would plug into them because everything has a different rating. You can't all of a sudden say, Alright, well, this 15 amp wire, sure, it's rated to 15 amps, but I'm going to put it on a 40 amp breaker, we'll see what happens that 14 gauge wire is going to catch on fire if it tries to pull 40 amps, because it's not going to kick the breaker, the line is just going to heat up within your walls, and you're going to have a fire somewhere within the walls. That's why finding the right answer and having the right mathematical theory behind it is important that keeps us safe that keeps your house from burning down. And again, don't think that this is going to stop here. Don't think that they're going to Kind of pump the brakes and say all right this is enough this is how we clean up the stem fields that's that's not it this is just the beginning and you know if you listen to a lot of academics a lot of professors they're more in the psychology fields in the social skills and in those kind of fields they you know it's been happening for a long time but it it doesn't really make sense why this attack is coming out of the stem fields unless you see that it's just kind of a gradual movement into the whole idea and the whole education system. And now even pulling up, you know, on the front page of equitablemath.org. If you read through their kind of introduction, so one of the sentences here, the pathway offers guidance and resources for educators to use now as they plan their curriculum, while also offering opportunities for ongoing self reflection as they seek to develop an anti racist math practice. Now, look, I get this is coming from a white guy who you know, despite just being a tradesman, I really do enjoy math. I enjoyed math all the way through school. And it's something that I still get to use to this day, every day. So I don't understand how, how finding a right or a correct answer is in any way racist. I don't understand how that discriminates against anybody. Um, if anything, that's what kind of helps create or keep math pure in that sense. You know, there is there's only one way that you can really determine numbers. There's only one way to analyze them. um, And that's looking for the right answer. That's what, again, that's what science and technology is all about. Engineering, are you kidding me? Like, you have to be able to design things to properly withhold or withstand whatever type of pressure or weight they they need to be able to withstand. They need to be able to support. And that striving, that struggle to find the right answer, I don't understand how that could be classified in any way as racist or discriminatory against anybody, it, it doesn't make any sense. And sorry, so I know this is something that, again, I've kind of been trying to avoid for a while, because I just find it such a common topic on a lot of podcasts. But switching gears now from the STEM fields just into social, everything, I mean, everybody's well aware of what's going on in the forms of cancel culture, and the idea of being somehow intolerantly tolerant, you you know, you're the most tolerant person in the world, but fuck anybody who doesn't think like you that type of tolerance so there's also i mean right now when was this news story released this news story was released four days ago uh california law would fine department stores one thousand dollars for separating toys by gender now thank god the mr or mrs or just potato head dolls have really got ahead of the curb on this one they uh you know, that was all over my newsfeed. I'm sure it was all everybody everybody else's newsfeed. Um, I don't really care. It's a plastic potato. I didn't think it had any genitalia at any point anyway. It, it seems like a moot point. It's just a really great exercise and exhibition in marketing skills. And that, that whole marketing department deserves a huge raise at Hasbro because I had no idea those toys even existed still. I mean, my, my kids watch Toy Story all the time. It's their least favorite toy on Toy Story. And other than in the movie, I didn't realize they were still making it. So kudos to your marketing department. You got more free advertising than you could have ever bargained for. Or, yeah, you probably knew that, but way more advertising than you could have ever paid for. Good job, you guys all deserve raises. But going back to these department stores, I mean, who are the kind of the designations for anyway? It's not for the kids. I mean, I know when we go to a store, if we tell the kids that they can get a toy, we don't go to the boys section. We just go to the toys section and then they pick whatever it is that they want that's in the price range. They don't care if it's a boy or a girl section. That's only set up for parents. And if you're a parent or, sorry, or an aunt and uncle, whatever, anybody who's going to look for, say, a gift for a kid, like that's what it's set up for. That's why it's split up. And if you're an adult who's getting offended at the fact that, that these toys aren't all grouped together, that they aren't all just gender-neutral toys, then get a grip. I mean, the kids don't care. My kids will pick any toy. I mean, they tend to gravitate towards trucks and dinosaurs and Lego. That's just what they tend to like. I mean, we didn't teach them to like it. That's just a natural what they're drawn to. So say what you will. But uh, the idea that somehow kids are getting offended by toys being split up that way is completely false. And if it's really for adults who are getting offended by it, Jesus, like, give your head a shake. If that's what you're most worried about, I mean, God, I hope the aliens come down. At least it would give us some to actually think about as opposed to thinking about splitting up toys or fining companies for not splitting up the toys into gender binaries. It's, It's bananas to me. It's not, you know what? It's not even the fact that there's a fine associated with it, although I do think that's complete bullshit trying to mandate that into stores. But it's just the idea that seriously, adults are spending their time thinking about and worrying about toys being split up into boys and girls groups. Grow up. I mean, at the same time that people are arguing about the gender of a plastic potato, we're landing the Perseverance rover on Mars and getting back real-time images and looking for samples of life On the next planet over. The fact that these two things are happening in the same timeline is insane to me. It's laughable. But, you know, it's a sign of the times. I mean, again, I hope we get something that actually unites people, you know, maybe an alien shows up, we get some unequivocal proof of life out there outside of our own planet. You know, I mean, in Canada here, we had, it was a big news story carried by all the local government or all the local news pages, but It was a big story. It says, so it's from eight days ago, MPs vote to label China's persecution of the Uyghur people a genocide. Like, how is that? How is that a news story? Like that that should be common knowledge. But then you look into it. And it's only because our leading party, our governing party, the Liberal Party of Canada under Justin Trudeau, abstained from the vote because he doesn't want to, you know, shit where he eats. And so he's not going to say anything against the Chinese government. But At the same time, you can't exactly vote against that. So he's, you know, his whole party steps aside, allows this vote to go through, but at the same time, kind of brushing their hands of it. The whole thing is insane. And again, that all this can be happening while we have a rover on Mars is crazy. I mean, if that doesn't make you laugh, I don't know what will. That's the most darkly cosmic humor there is. And I mean, changing gears a little bit here. On this podcast, I really try to highlight stories of people kind of overcoming great disasters, whether it's a fault of their own or not, just bad circumstance, whatever it is. I mean, you, you're you familiar with, I've had Dustin on twice. I've talked to other people just about different things that they've overcome. It's something that I find really inspiring and that I hope to convey to a lot of people on here. Um, it's something that I hear a lot through the trades, just people kind of finding themselves through hard work and a little bit of effort. It's a great story. But anyway, I mean, if there's if there's one thing that social media likes more than seeing a comeback or somebody really building themselves up, it's absolutely tearing people down and never giving them an opportunity of recourse or being reaccepted into kind of the social sphere. You know, I don't know if you remember back to the story of Mimi Groves, who was 15 at the time that she was caught on video saying a racial slur. The worst one, you know what I'm talking about, um, and you know the the video surfaced four years later. She was ejected, lost all of her uh, admissions to any any kind of higher education school, any colleges that she was applying to, any universities. And the thing is, there is there's no recourse. There's no way for her to come back, despite it being a video sent to a friend. Which look, I'm not I'm not saying anything good about the language. I don't use it. I don't think people should use it. But we have to keep in mind that this girl was 15, sending it to a friend, and it wasn't part of public discourse. It wasn't said out loud near anybody who we would offend, which, again, look, I get the word is bad. I'm not saying anything about that. Um, but the fact that she now has her life ruined four years later when this video surfaces, still she's what, 19, 20 when it comes out? Still a kid. Um, and I mean, where does she go from here? How do you get that how do you get that forgiveness? How do you get accepted back into society after this happens? Everything's public now. Everything's digital. There's a record of everything that happens. I just thank God that I grew up kind of just before iGen or the iPhone generation when when everybody had an iPhone at school. You know, that's when everything was being documented. Everybody's updating statuses. People are, you know, updating their own statuses, which I have some cringy ones that pop up in Facebook memories every once in a while from... 1213 years ago, but whatever, at least I didn't have that in high school, I was I was out I had graduated. But the idea that you can do something as a kid, um, again, when your brain isn't fully developed, this is very well documented. And that will haunt you and ruin your life years down the road, or for x number of years for the rest of your life, whatever it may be, everything that you do, you say you put out there, it's documented. It's kept on record, it's digitized, there's no way to walk back from it. And I mean, this is going to get real artsy fartsy and kind of stupid for a second. But the way I like to think of it anyway, is the idea of a caterpillar going to a chrysalis going to a butterfly, you know, you're a kid, your caterpillar. And ideally, when you're going through that transformative phase that that chrysalis, It'd be pretty nice to have some kind of protective coding or at least where you're not visible to the outside world, you're a little bit more protected. I mean, that's next to impossible now, although I have a feeling, I hope anyway, that things will kind of change in the future that maybe will limit the online presence of specifically preteens, teenagers, all the way up to whatever, 18, 19, graduating high school. I think that'd be great. I mean, there were so many things that I did that looking back, like I am thankful as fuck that they weren't recorded, that that didn't become part of my personal record, my digital record, my, my footprint, because man, like, could have bit me in the ass. And it was just stupid stuff that everybody does as a teenager. I mean, you're running on essentially pure testosterone and caffeine half the time. What do you expect's going to happen? It's not like you even have a fully formed frontal cortex at that time, especially as a as a guy. I don't think that forms till you're like what, 25, 26? What chance did I have at 15, 16? And what chance does anybody have? Like this is one of the things that kind of terrifies me having having boys. Well, it wouldn't make a difference if I had boys or girls, but just kids growing up nowadays with with their phones being connected to the internet all the time, constantly being filmed, everything getting recorded it's terrifying. And I don't really know how you put the genie back in the bottle. I, I don't understand how it'll work. But I know that we're trying to limit our nine, almost 10 year old, his online activity as much as possible. It's just, you can't grasp that at that age, you have that has to fall on the parent. It's the one time, despite sharing a lot of libertarian values, it's the one time I will go full tyranny is on my kids when it comes to their online presence. I just, I Don't want it. I know it's not good for them. They fight me on it. My nine-year-old fights me on it all the time because some of his friends have iPads, iPhones, whatever. They're surfing the web. They're doing everything. Parents don't care. And uh, we just aren't the same way. I I don't want my son to be subjected to that. And I don't want him to put something out there that is going to come back to haunt him years later. And you know, again, this is a fresh story, but just going back on the idea that these previous things, regardless of their intent, regardless of what feeling was behind it can come back to haunt you like so Donald McNeil, who is, uh, let me just pull up his thing here. So he's a science and public health reporter at the New York Times. So he just resigned this last week. um, After 45 years at the New York Times, he was one of the leading guys recording or reporting on the Coronavirus pandemic. He did a lot with the Zika virus. And he was fired or forced to resign anyway, because he had used a racial slur describing another event to a high school class that he was speaking to. And the way he had put it was that, you know, he was trying to kind of catch their attention, get them to pay attention a little bit more. And how do you do that with a group of high schoolers? I mean, you throw a word in there and everybody's eyes are going to be glued on you, especially nowadays. But in his defense, he says, Am I a racist? Mr. McNeil wrote, I don't think so. After working in 60 countries over 25 years, I think I'm pretty good at judging people as individuals. But am I racist is actually a harder question to answer about yourself than some self righteous people think. And so I mean, you can tell he's, he doesn't think that these, these things are grounded that there there's any reason behind these accusations, but he doesn't deny saying the word he he says that he regrets it, that he probably shouldn't have said it. But at the same time, like, there was no intention behind it. There was no aggression, no meaning, no harm behind it. He was trying to convey a story, trying to teach this group of students about something that had happened. And so, you know, that's crazy. 45 years at the paper, he was obviously very successful, very good at what he did. And it all goes down the drain for something that happened again, two years ago on a trip that now all of a sudden gets leaked, gets reported, boom, he's done. No way of recourse, no forgiveness, no nothing. That's it. You got to step down out of the out of your job. And so this is, again, just the extreme level of intolerance by the supposed tolerant group, the ones who's trying to make the world a better place. But if you think differently or if you, you know, if anything steps out of any number of constantly moving boundaries, then that's it you're done. And to you to a lot of the people who support all of this stuff, like just keep in mind that their crosshairs right now aren't directed at you. But who's to say that those that that doesn't swing your way in the future, that something that you've done is now deemed horrible. All right, full disclosure, this analogy isn't mine. I heard it on a podcast recently, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it fits perfectly what if one day the fact that anybody or that any human ate meat is now considered an absolutely cancelable offense? Well, how many of you have eaten meat? Okay, is that part of the cultural norm now? I mean, who knows what happens in the future, but that's part of the cultural norm now. But how are you going to convey that to somebody in the future when they say, oh, you ate meat? You know, you got to quit. You got to step down. There's no way we can have any meat eaters in here. And I'm I'm not taking anything away from racism or even institutional racism to a certain level when we're talking about redlining laws. But when we're talking about rewriting Gone with the Wind, which was a novel put out in 1936, we're dealing with a very different cultural and a very different set of cultural norms. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that we can't just wash history and eliminate history and try to just turn a blind eye to it. That's how you forget. That's how you repeat. You have to learn from history. And there's no way that you can do that if you just wipe it from the record. So again, just keep in mind that just because we're fitting in with right now, current cultural norms, doesn't mean that you couldn't be getting the axe next week, next month or next year. This is an all encompassing net, or at least a very wide encompassing net. So You know, before you get all gung-ho and bring out the pitchforks and the torches, just think about things analytically for a little bit. And now if we take a look at a lot of this stuff, again, I'm not talking about legitimate instances of racism or anything like that, of, of real bigotry or discrimination. I'm not talking about that. But this is a widespread phenomenon. So in just based off of how big it's become, it's not not all of the cases are going to be true or factual. And so there's this really good article on uh, quillette.com. It's a, a psychology, it's a psychology site. Anyway, they have a lot of news stories. So this one's called The Evolutionary Advantages of Playing Victim. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph here. So it says, Victimhood is defined in negative terms, the condition of having been hurt, damaged, or made to suffer. Yet humans have evolved to empathize with the suffering of others and to provide assistance so as to eliminate or compensate for that suffering. Consequently, signaling suffering to others can be an effective strategy for attaining resources. Victims may receive attention, sympathy, and social status, as well as financial support and other benefits, and being a victim can generate certain kinds of power. It can justify the seeking of retribution, provide a sense of legitimacy or psychological standing to speak on certain issues, and may even confer moral impunity by minimizing blame for victims' own wrongdoings. So all of that was basically saying in a fancy and much more eloquent group of terms than I could have, that people have found a way to manipulate victimhood, to flip it on its head, to no longer make it a negative, to but to make it a moral and rewarding label to identify with. And again, I'm not going to read this whole article, but it basically goes on to reference and talk about published research. It's This is all fairly new, because this phenomena of victimhood, just on this large of a scale is so new. But it's talking about how you know, whether it's real or exaggerated, you're more likely to lie and cheat for material gain. If if you are somebody who consistently and constantly signals their own victimhood, victimhood signaling has been associated with numerous morally undesirable personality traits, such as narcissism and Machiavellianism, which is a willingness to manipulate and exploit others for self benefit. Uh, I think we can all think of people and that's a scary thing. Like, You know, you start to notice people who do this consistently, who make it a pattern. And it's, it's not, it's a lot easier now to do that because we have social media. I mean, a lot of the time, it's very hard to manipulate those people who know us best and who understand us. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't have manipulative family members and everything else. Everybody knows somebody like that too, but you're able to manipulate crowds on social media a lot easier than you can people who really know your ins and outs, who know, that this victimhood is false, or know that you play a major role in being responsible for that, that position that you're in. But now with social media, I mean, I'm sure that I've fallen for it before. I mean, I'm in a lot of dads groups. Every once in a while, dads will post talking about how they're running into hard times, it seems to be happening more and more now, which is understandable, given the situation that we're in. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, if you stand back, kind of distance yourselves from your feelings and from feeling empathetic and caring about them, which is a natural feeling like it's not something that I want to get rid of in myself, but you got to think about it. I mean, if they are now reaching out to strangers on the internet, rather than friends, family, people who they know, I mean, those people obviously aren't giving for a reason. Maybe they're strapped for cash, you know, whatever. I know that these situations do happen, but you got to look at it analytically. It's, it's not, it's not this wide scale of a phenomenon. I don't think than, than what it's being portrayed as, and that what we're now experiencing socially. And, you know, ironically, um, this is in part to actually science that was or studies that were conducted at the University of British Columbia, which is very near and dear to me. It's in my home province. It's probably the biggest university here, but they've made links or they've helped build these links between people who are constant kind of victimhood signalers. And and they're kind of the same people who will do what would be received as a morally upright upstanding acts such as say giving or buying lunch for a homeless person or something like that, but they will only do it when it's being publicly acknowledged. So if you've got a camera, we all know those people who film that stuff for social media. It just about turns your stomach. I get the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It's so cringy. Just do it. You know, the, the, the point of doing something like that isn't to gain social standing, isn't to increase your social score. But anyway, there's a very real link between people who are victimhood signalers and people who do things for the public eye for gaining that sense of social status. And the other thing, too, is that nearly everybody faces some kind of hardship at some point in life. You know, a lot of the time, most of us kind of face it either by ourselves or with those who we're close to, we share with the people that we trust, and we we lean on them to get through whatever that hardship is. We don't go to social media and try to try to claim victimhood and raise your you know your social standing. That's that's not the way most people go about it. So it's kind of it's alarming to see the frequency at which this is happening now because it doesn't seem to be legitimate. And a lot of these studies that they're now starting to conduct on this are proving that it's not legitimate. That a lot of this is just fabricated because that's now how you gain how you move up the hierarchy socially. That's just kind of laid into it now. I mean, it used to be hunter-gatherers way back in the day. If you brought in the biggest saber-toothed tiger, you moved up that hierarchy real quick. Now, if you're the biggest victim, you have the most weighing you down in life, boom, you move up. You need free stuff. People need to give you stuff. You need to be supported and praised. And, you know, like, let's be realistic. It's not like this is the only way that people fake to get ahead socially. I mean, people people lie and cheat when it comes to tests, you know, athletes dope, athletes take steroids, whatever it may be, like people do try to cheat different systems, different hierarchies to move up on them. This isn't, you know, it's it's in a class of its own. This is just a part of the wider social sphere. And it's interesting to see how prevalent it's become. And it's, you know, it's, it's sad to me, to be honest, because it, uh, we all go through stuff. And I find that, when you kind of get faked by one of these people who are trying to signal you, it it tarnishes your view of anybody who then tries to reach out. And that's a massive negative in general. I mean, I don't want to have the guards up or get cynical when somebody reaches out or they're expressing that they really need help. But when you see it faked so many times, and that's kind of the danger of this, is that it's going to create that level of cynicism towards people reaching out, towards people... um, yeah, just, just expressing themselves, expressing what is going on and what their circumstances are doing to them at any given time. All right, sorry, I uh, really ran up against the clock there. Didn't realize how long I had gone on. Um, again, sorry, that one had a little bit of a different feel, followed a little bit of a different uh, format than most of my solo podcast episodes. But again, I try to talk about things that interest me, thinking that hopefully they'll interest you guys. If I'm engaged in a conversation even if it's with myself, I figure that people are going to be engaged with me. So thank you for listening. Um, Next week, I'll try to follow along with a normal pattern. I'm actually, again, working my way through 1984 and Brave New World again, trying to uh, buff up on those two books. I'm going to try to do a little podcast series where I'll kind of talk over each book for an episode and then contrast them in a final episode. Let me know what you think of that. I think it's going to be really interesting. It's amazing how these books from the 30s and the 40s um, really encapsulated today's society. It's it's fascinating, especially considering, again, the age of the books. And now, before I take off, I just wanted to remind you guys that I have stickers available. If you want to send an email to plaidjacketphilosopher at gmail.com, uh, just give me your name, your address. You're not going to be added to any mailing list or any kind of. Email list, you're just gonna. I'm gonna put some stickers in the mail, send them out to you wherever you are, and yeah, then you can throw them on your hard hat, throw them on your toolbox, throw them on your laptop, whatever you want. But I really appreciate the support, and I've got these stickers made up. So drop me a line on the email or on any social media, and I will get back to you and I'll get those letters in the mail ASAP. So that's it. Uh, I hope you guys found some value in this week's episode. If you did and are interested in more content like this, please rate, review, subscribe, and recommend the podcast to a friend. I really appreciate all the feedback you guys have given me to this point and look forward to hearing from you again. As always, the podcast page is the Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Facebook and at Plaid Jacket Philosopher on Instagram. That concludes this week's episode. Thank you so much for the continued support and especially to those of you who reach out weekly with comments on each episode. Have a great week and I'll talk to you all again soon.